this is Tommy Outdoors 142. And today I have a book for you. The book is titled Treated Like Animals, Improving the Lives of the Creatures We Own, Eat and Use. And as the title suggests, this book is about animal welfare. And it is uh, written by the one and only Alec Simmons. You may remember Alec from one of the previous episodes of the podcast, or you may know him from his Twitter account. He's quite active on Twitter. And uh, the book is not only about farm animals or pets. It is also about welfare of wildlife. And if you're a hunter and angler, and I know many of you are out there uh, listening to this podcast, we should uh, really reflect on some of the aspects of animal welfare. Um, don't worry, that book is not like preaching what you should be doing. It is merely highlighting uh, various aspects of animal welfare. And uh, it's really thought-provoking to think about uh, those things. And also, you know, anybody who is uh, dealing with uh, animals, uh, like I said, whether there are stock animals, you're a farmer, or maybe you just uh, have a pet, anyone who interacts with animals. Uh, and um, most of us do, uh, especially those who eat meat. That's, uh, without a doubt, a type of interaction with the animals. There are food. Um, I should read that book. It, it, it's really good, and, and I think that it talks about many aspects of animal welfare that are not um, discussed too often, okay? So uh, you can buy this book using links in the description of this show. I encourage you to buy this book using links in the description of this show um, because, for for one, you will get the excellent book, and secondly, I will get a small commission of your purchase, which helps me in running this podcast. During our conversation with Alec, we're not talking only about the book, but rather we pick out some especially interesting to me and hopefully to you as well aspects of animal welfare and we do what we do in this podcast meaning we go deep on him um very interesting conversation with alec and uh, clearly he has those things well thought out and as you can see this is a fairly substantial book um those on who watching this on youtube now see this book that is very substantial but when I was reading it, at no point I felt like Alec is dragging it or trying to make it, uh, you know, longer or larger. It's it's really a lot of of his lifetime experiences uh, converted into this sort of knowledge and and really aimed at making you think about uh, certain interactions with animals that you wouldn't think otherwise. Okay. Anyway, uh, that's it for this uh, prolonged introduction. Remember. Buy the book using links in the description of the show. And now, without any further delay, Alec Simmons and Treat It Like Animals. Alec, welcome to the show. It's good to have you again. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, if that's what you can call it. It's snowy Somerset. It's just started snowing here. Um, and uh, I'm delighted uh, to be back, really. It's, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it's good to talk to you. Listen, uh, before we jump into talking about the book and all the uh, complex issues you're, you're talking about in the book, like first of all, congrats on that 10K Barracuda that you landed. So... Is, does the fish feel pain? Well, as, as if you read the literature, um, and essentially it's science that would give us these answers as far as we are able, ever able to understand. Uh, but a hook that goes into a fish's mouth and then uh, being dragged through the water is almost certainly going to be what is called a noxious stimulus. It is going to be a stimulus, a an injury which causes damage to the animal's mouth and therefore it's going to react to that. Um, and evidence from uh, work in laboratory conditions using fish 
uh, where they are given access or given exposure to noxious stimuli um, and then given an opportunity to avoid them uh, is uh, pretty good evidence, particularly if you repeat it with the opportunity to uh, take a different path, is evidence that these animals are suffering. Um, that's a difficult one, though, because uh, one could argue that uh, a line core fish, if we're going to catch it at all, suffers probably less than a fish caught in a net uh, with several hundred or several thousand more fish and being dragged up from the depths and being crushed and then flopping about on a deck whilst they're being gutted alive or whatever else might happen to them. Um, but certainly what we know is that animals with a spine, vertebrate animals, which includes obviously fish, um, have got a nervous system which is likely to be able to show that these animals can feel pain. Question is, does it matter? Um, I think it does. Um, having said that, I haven't stopped fishing. And that's because I'm conflicted. Uh, I don't fish much. In fact, I haven't been fishing for three years. But uh, I do worry about how we do these things, whether we should do them at all, and what we can do to make it better. You're, you're, you said that you were still, at least at the time of writing the book, undecided about eating fish. You had a, a you had a your your views on eating meat and uh, eating meat coming yeah. from a certain farming practices and so on. Have you made a decision about uh, eating fish yet? <laughs> um, well, I rarely eat fish at home because it's quite difficult to get that uh, around here anyway. Unless you want a, a lump of frozen cod, which is not terribly appetizing. Um, yeah. What I do find I do is eat fish while I'm out. I, I, oh. If I go out to eat, out, I eat fish nearly always, and I really like it. Um, so I'm conflicted. and I, I, I would emphasize that I don't think I'm perfect. In fact, I'm sure I'm not perfect. Um, uh, some of the issues that I delve into in the book are partly examined because I don't have a personal solution. I don't have a society solution but I want people to start thinking about it like I do and try and work out through evidence, through thought, through discussion about where they ought to stand. And as you've seen from the book, I'm not a vegan, I'm not a vegetarian, but I eat an awful lot less meat, <clears throat> excuse me, an awful lot less meat than I used to. Uh, my Both my children are vegetarians um, and they have done that for both environmental and animal welfare reasons. Um, so, for example, this Christmas, my family and I, when they were here, um, we ate no meat. We had a, a nut roast for Christmas Day, okay. which is very good. Yeah. But having said that, I, I do enjoy um, a pork roast, but I haven't had one for probably six months. No, and you know, this is this is part really in, in your in your book that struck me that your people who. You know, might know your you from from social media or just look at the title of the book. They will think that this is sort of a uh, preaching. At, and and I didn't found this book being you know like a prescriptive or, or preaching at any point. It's more of a of a, of a you know like a thinking thinking thing. Um, to, so tell me, who's the ideal reader of that book? Who you who you wrote that book for? Well, first of all, I wrote it for me because I wanted to get these thoughts down on paper, but. The, the audience, I think, is for people that are interested in their food, where it comes from, how it's produced, and also um, people who have an interest in the way, in our, a way animals are, how they're kept, how they're used, how they're exploited, and would want to understand a bit more. Because the book goes into a lot of detail about wild animals, farmed animals, research animals animals used in conservation, even racing animals, and sets out some of the problems and successes associated with each of these groups and tries to draw distinctions between them so people can start to form their own opinions, which are based on evidence and science as much as possible. Uh, ultimately, however, the decision that anybody will make is based on their own values. But I would prefer people make decisions 
based on their own values that are informed, at least to some extent, by some evidence rather than what they might read on Facebook, for example. I think that like a substantial or, or maybe even central concept in the book that you talk about is this capacity to suffer that you're uh, that you that you even mentioned earlier on top of the show when you talk about you know all the animals with the central nervous system and and, and so on. So this is, I, I guess, the the fundamental question. Uh, I'm I'm guessing, and you can correct me that you would hope people will ask themselves, you know, is that animal have a capacity to suffer? Would that be correct? I, I think that's right, and and. What's interesting is if you think about it, or if you go back through history, recent history, um, what's happened is that people's view about, for example, in the 19th century about uh, the ability of an animal to suffer has changed a great deal. It wasn't probably until the early 19th century that people even believed that an animal was capable of suffering at all. And society, legislation, attitudes have changed over time. And therefore, the suite of animals, the, the, the scope of, of protection has expanded. And what's interesting is that we've just started to take into account that some invertebrates are likely to be able to suffer, having accepted for many years that all vertebrates are able to suffer. And if we're able to do that by giving them the benefit of the doubt, then it follows that the way in which we treat them needs to reflect that. And this, one of the other central parts of the book is the way in which we treat animals is dictated more by about how we use them rather than what animals they are. So, for example, I use the example of the rat. Um, a rat in, uh, in a household as a pet is cosseted, well-fed, often quite obese, a rat in a laboratory uh, may well be experimented on, but it is also given extraordinarily good care and also under high degree of scrutiny by the regulator. And then a rat in the wild, well, anything can happen to that. We use all sorts of ways of killing them, almost all of which are known to be inhumane. And yet this rat, whether it's in somebody's bedroom as a pet, in a laboratory as a research animal, or in the wild, is the same animal. So if one can suffer, the other one can suffer. So what I'm arguing is we need to recognize that animals in certain circumstances are often very poorly treated, merely because of the use to which we put them, versus what we know about their capacity to suffer, or for that matter, how we would normally give the benefit of the doubt in one circumstance, but not the other. Let's think about the the way in which we treat a rat in the wild. Now, I, I, I would emphasize, I'm not arguing that we should never kill rats. I would rather that we find ways to exclude them from the places where they cause trouble. And work needs to be done on how to make buildings and restaurants and factories free of rats. And for the most part, it can be done, but it's not easy, I accept. But even if you do kill them, we ought to try and do it humanely. And given that most of the methods, if not all of the methods we use for killing rats are demonstrably inhumane, we could do a lot better. We need to put effort into doing this. Yeah. And and humane treatment and humane killing of animals, that's that's a huge part of what you talk about. And we, we that's really what our previous focus uh, podcast focused on but i just want to before we dive deeper into this this subject you know like i felt like in your book which is which is part of a appeal to me at least you you're taking like very broad uh view on what exploitation of animals is right because your 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 book is not focusing on humane treatment per se but rather exploitation of of the animals and you know, people, when you talk about exploiting animals, people think about animals maybe, you know, raised for fur or for meat or or something like that, or maybe animals that are used, you know, like you said, as a sport animal or maybe in some countries as an animal that, uh, you know, uh, are used to plothing the field or whatever. But you also talk about, obviously, 
uh, farm animals and and uh, experimental animals in the labs, but also pets. Uh, and and people don't think I think they they they, they not often think about pets as you know having a pet as exploiting an animal or or another example that you're giving is uh, feeding birds in a garden where most people are feel like very smug about it and we know like there's a more and more evidence comes to lie that really feeding uh, birds in the in the gardens are probably not that good for them either but then a lot of people will say like oh what do you mean exploiting animal i'm feeding them and yet for you this is all falls under that umbrella of exploiting animals so does any interaction with the animal almost any interaction with the animal is exploiting him well uh, in fact i i go further than that because i actually say that some aspects of conservation are ex exploited yes that's and another one that's another one tagging ringing and, yeah and, and, and ultimately it's any human intervention which is primarily for the benefit of the human the person uh so it's quite clear to me that keeping pets where they become obese, where their behavior is so badly curtailed that they become distressed, that they're left for long periods on their own without any company, um, that they are bred to have gross deformities, and many of them are, particularly dogs, that's a form of exploitation which could be reduced. So um, I argue that we need to find better ways to take responsibility. And I would also argue that for many people, the only interaction they have with animals is their pets. And here's something that the individual could do. The dog owner, the cat owner, the rabbit owner can start to do something which is actually beneficial to that animal. And rather than worrying, which I think they should continue to do, about the future of farming animals or research animals, here's something you could do and Stop buying deformed pugs. Stop overfeeding your animals and stop leaving them for long periods of the day where they are distressed beyond belief. So something which is in the gift of many, many people. There are 10 million dog owners in this country and 11 million cat owners or thereabouts. So a lot of people could do some good here. Um, and it may not be within the strict definition of exploitation, but a lot of things that are done to pets are done for the human convenience or because uh, of vanity, sloth, or just poor understanding of the animal's needs. The same, you're, you said that a lot of uh, questionable practices in farming was, was introduced only to make human life easier, which on the other hand, you you know, you, you can argue that's natural, right? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, there are a number of things which go on with farmed animals, and that's why there are three chapters devoted to it uh, in the book. Um, and, I mean, as you know, I was a practicing vet for many years and also worked in a regulatory environment within the government for, for years. And I've also worked overseas in different farming environments. And you're right. An awful lot of what happens to farmed animals is for their con our convenience and also to improve the productivity of those animals. But that's what they're for. Those animals are not there. They're not pets. They're not there for conservation purposes. They're not there to improve the environment. They're there to produce meat, milk, and eggs. And if we're going to do that, we either accept that we do this in a way which is recognizing that these animals are sentient and therefore treating them better, reducing their numbers or eliminating even the various different mutilations we do, providing them with an environment which recognizes their behavioral needs and provide them with the opportunity to roam where necessary and make sure that they're at least comfortable for um, their lives. The difficulty about that is that it flies in the face of modern animal production, which is to maximize the amount of meat produced per unit area of a given area, a given farm or, or, or unit. The difficulty about that is 
that in order to maximize the amount of meat produced per unit area, you have to curtail the animal's ability to interact with its others, to form the social bonds that under normal circumstances where they would do. And also you have to mutilate them. You cannot keep cattle in close confinement. When I say close confinement, in housing in the winter. And they have horns because they will gore each other and cause all sorts of damage to each other. You cannot keep pigs um, in an environment where the environment is suboptimal without cutting their tails off because they'll start biting each other, start eating each other. Um, so we have to form a view about how we are a society prepared to accept what is doable or not and what is acceptable or not. And over time, we have been. I mean, it's worth remembering that a number of mutilations, a number of types of animal husbandry have been banned as a result of scientific endeavour, which has found that the animal's behaviour has been curtailed and these animals are permanently and continuously stressed. Having said that, there are many other areas of work we could be working on and, and concentrating on. But it's also worth pointing out that, for example, the banning of the battery cage, the unfurnished battery cage for poultry, wasn't just a scientific endeavour. It wasn't just a scientific discovery that led to the decision to, to ban these. It was because people said, I don't like this. I do not want to see the eggs that I eat being derived from chickens that are kept in a space which you wouldn't keep my animals, the animals I keep at home in. This is unacceptable. So society has the opportunity and should be driving, within limits, I accept, the way in which we are prepared to do this, provided the science backs it up as well. I, I wouldn't say that merely because you don't like the look of something, it should be banned. But if the science is sufficiently strong to say, that certain other practices, which we accept now, or at least some people are accepting now, doesn't necessarily mean it should continue if the science says we need to make changes. Yeah, but I think that the aspect of people seeing things are is also important. Um, uh, I think it was like a two or three episodes uh, earlier, I was talking about salmon farming. And, yes. And something that is that is. Uh, coming up repeatedly is like, well, if if only more people knew how how it really looks like compared to the you know nice and advertised product, then they would apply more pressure um, because a lot of that is like, oh, this is you know a, a lot of people just reading not the scientific paper or research on on animal husbandry, but li reading a label on a on a packet. And it's green, organic, uh, you know, ethically raised, uh, best in class salmon or beef or whatever. And it's like, oh, great! I guess I'm going to buy this. And then, and the other thing is like with with eggs that you mentioned. There's a lot of uh, eggs that are like free roam, uh, eggs, like from free roam hens. But those those hens are not what you think the free roam looks like. They're just not in those barren cages, but they're far from you know, living off the land. So I think that's the important aspect as well. And, and, and that's a very, very good point. And one of the things I try to draw, bring out is that what I call shining a light on practices, whether they happen to be wildlife, farming, research animals, or even conservation, is, is very helpful because first, if you've got nothing to hide, then open the doors. And second, they are your customers. The people that are wanting to have a look inside are your customers. And the better informed they are, the more likely they are to be loyal to your product. One of the things I found absolutely fascinating when I was researching this was the work that had been, has been done by the research community. Now, I should say that I'm fairly heavily involved in this now because I chair an ethics committee for Uh, the Zoological Society of London. So I'm involved in the governance of research into animals, albeit not medical, it's about conservation, but I'm still involved in that governance. So therefore I've got, if you like, a foot in that camp already. Having said that, we're pretty tough on the researchers. Um, you know, we, we, we hold them to account. 
but what has happened is that the group, the, the various different responsible people involved in animal research several years ago were worried about people's perception of animal research, and rightly so, because why wouldn't you be uh, when you hear the stories about what go on? But they did a, a very detailed survey, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating, asking people what their views about animal research was and what more they would like to know. And the responses were absolutely fascinating. And it came down to the fact that people said, we don't know enough and we'd like to know more. So as a result of that, this concordat, which I detail in chapter 10 of the book, sets out a, an approach whereby the various different institutes that are involved have signed up to being more open. Now, it doesn't mean you get tours around the laboratory, but it does mean that they publish much more in a way which is better understood or better uh, interpreted or interpretable by the general public rather than scientists. And they're showing videos of what they do. And ultimately, that is something which will have an influence on public opinion for bad or or better or worse. And I think that's a good thing. Interestingly enough, farming is doing more of this with Open Farm Sunday, which is uh, an organization which encourages farmers to open up their farms to the general public, have a look around and see what goes on. Um, and the more that this can be done, the more that people will understand where their food comes from, where their research benefits come from. And it's an opportunity to change attitudes. It might harden some. It could soften other people's attitudes as well. But I take the view that by explaining to people, by being open to people, you're much more likely to bring them on board, albeit probably losing a proportion of them, because the people that understand, the people that appreciate what goes on and accept it, are going to be good advocates of best practice and ultimately be more protective of whatever it is you're trying to do. There's also this aspect, when, when, if we come back for a second to farm animals and animals that are, you know, produced, let's say, for uh, human consumption, that it also impacts the quality of the final product, the quality of the food, uh, how good, good of a life that animal had. And, you know, we heard, like, the, the, for example, the meat of a cow that is grain-fed all its life it's it, it, with qualities that are results of you know the hormonal balance of the animal and all that are uncomparably worse versus the animal that uh, you know free grazes and is able to self-medicate with herbs and, and 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 stuff like that right and i think that this is part where where hunters are aware of that if you if you have a deer that is stressed and 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 was running and and all that then the quality of meat will be lower versus the animal and even if you're if you're shooting animal during the rut where there's a lot of hormones in it and it just goes about it that's that's straight away impacts the uh the quality of a meat versus the animal that just have a good life and have nothing extraordinary going on in, in its life so i think even from that perspective if people are aware of that uh that could drive the you know just a desire to for the for the better quality product for the better quality meat which translates to the health yes. benefits it, it it does and it's worth pointing out that it's been known for decades that um uh cattle and pigs that are stressed in the uh few hours or even minutes before slaughter um will produce a much lower quality meat which uh is either tough or um uh doesn't keep um and that's something that for the most part the meat industry and farmers have, uh, have addressed well uh, by dealing with that. But it's also worth pointing out that animals are pretty resilient and their physical ability and physiological ability to cope with stress and distress is quite large, but it's not infinite. It, reaches a point at which an animal will start to deteriorate, to suffer, and ultimately die. Um, the question is, 
and this is where something is quite difficult to define. The question is, at what point in the point of production of that animal does that problem develop? And let's talk about the broiler chicken, the chicken that we eat, the one that is ubiquitous in supermarkets, anything from £2.50 to £5 or even higher for the better quality or bigger birds. And these are produced by their billion in this country. Well, about a billion of, 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 of broilers produced in this country every year. And what's happened to them over time through better disease control, better nutrition, better housing, and better genetics is that the speed at which this bird reaches a slaughter weight of about two and a half to three kilos has reduced from about 80 days immediately post the Second World War down to 32 to 35 days. So in other words, what we've got is a chicken which weighs about two and a half kilos at the time we kill it, is 40 days or even 35 days old, whereas the same bird that was grown in 1945 or 1950 would have taken 80 days to reach that thing. So essentially, what you're eating is a child. You're eating, it might be a huge child, a beast child, an enormous muscle child, but it's still a child. And if you stop, if you don't slaughter it at 40 or 45 days, it will continue to grow and eat, and ultimately it will keel over because essentially it has outgrown its muscular uh, musculoskeletal system because the breeding of this animal and the feeding of this animal is designed to reach at 35 days rather than 45, 50, or 60. And these animals are incapable, essentially, of reaching maturity. So whilst what you might see is this perfectly grown chicken, the resilience of it to this enormous physiological uh, speed at which it's having to uh, metabolize all the food it's eating and grow and grow and grow, it ultimately is leading to its demise, but we kill it before it, it reaches that point. So you could argue that whilst we're maybe not causing an awful lot of death amongst these animals, we're simply avoiding it because we kill it before they reach a point where that becomes a problem. Now, is that an acceptable way to produce an animal? And is that animal distressed whilst it's going through that? I don't know. I'm uncomfortable about broiler production. I eat very little chicken meat now, and I try and buy it from places where the more traditional, slower-growing birds are reared. But I do wonder whether or not what we've done has gone too far, simply because... The, the physiological and physical stress under which these birds are produced is probably a step too far. You know, I'm, I'm under the opinion, and, and I know many people share that opinion, that chicken that you can buy in the, you know, massive supermarkets, those mass-produced chickens, this is the worst quality meat ever. You cannot have it because of also all the antibiotics and everything else that goes into them just to keep them alive. Um you know, when you're saying this thing, you know, what, what my thoughts are that this is almost, especially that example of a broiler chicken, you think about the, you know, artificial meat, and there's a lot of now, you know, like they grown from cells and so on and so forth. It almost seems to me like a uh, middle step is just to take like a broiler chicken and just remove its brain and remove its, you know, all the non-essential part and kind of grow it that way. It's almost like next step if you think about what you're what you and then like okay it's not suffering it doesn't have a brain it's just you know it's just kept alive like a zombie chicken and and then there's a question like would you like to eat zombie chicken well not. it's very interesting I, I don't know if you've read um a book by margaret atwood um she wrote the handmaid's tale but there's another book she wrote called oryx and crake which amongst other things goes into uh, artificial meat grown in laboratories uh, where essentially the chicken, uh, the bits of the chicken that people want to eat, the breast meat, for example, is grown essentially on a, on a, on a platform. Um, and I've no idea what that would be like, but 
I find it hard to believe it will taste worse than a broiler chicken because what does a broiler chicken <laughs> taste of? Not very much. I, 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 we tend to eat guinea fowl at home, um, and they take 12, 16 weeks to reach maturity, uh, and, and they taste like a bird, not like a sponge. You know, when I was reading your book, uh, I was kind of refining my my thoughts that I have also on uh, during discussions about shooting deer for, for food and hunting, recreational hunting and so on. Do you think that we as a society uh, have a much better life? We suffer much less. Um, a lot of uh, things that are upsets us now wouldn't be even noticed uh, 20, 50, 60 years ago. And we became soft. And that's why we looking at like, oh, you know, like poor this animal, poor that animal, do they have a capacity to suffer? Because we as humans are suffering much less. So where I'm heading with that is that those animals are way tougher than we think. And the way that they suffer might not be, you know, on a scale of suffering if, if anything like that exists. Uh, much less than we think. It's so far they they're 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 suffering, but they're able to deal with that suffering much better than we think they are. By the the parallel of how we used to be able to deal with our suffering much better than we do right now. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Is is that a part of like we just we as a species becomes became soft and we try to project um, those those cases onto the wildlife because you know like when, when you think about the deer that deer is out there day night winter snow whatever it's it arguably suffers and it deals with that so curious of your thoughts yeah well you start to press me now it's, it's uh this is getting getting right into the heart of the matter so good i think when i think about my parents generation um they went through the Second World War in uniform, um, and I wouldn't have described them as tough, but they weren't complainers. They just got on with things. Post-war, what they wanted to see was um, uh, a better life for themselves and a better life for their children uh, than uh, they had. Um, and they didn't, you know, they weren't suffering from the amount of childhood mortality that happened in the thirties. They were very, very strong proponents of things like vaccines. They really believed it, though. So we were vaccinated, everything that was going uh, in the 50s and 60s, my siblings and I. So and, and given what I did, which was working on preventing disease in, in wildlife, sorry, in farmed animals and so forth for my entire career, I'm a bit of a fan of vaccines. So I have very, very little tolerance for those that are anti-vax. I think probably that's, I didn't say any more, but I'm convinced that one of the reasons why people, some people are anti-vaccines is because they don't know what happens if you don't vaccinate children uh, uh, against measles, mumps, rubella, whooping cough, and a variety of other diseases. People used to lose 50% of their kids in the 20s and 30s. So, you know, toughen up and bloody well get it. Anyway, we won't go on any further about that. There's no doubt about it. Animals are tougher than we think. I mean, you mentioned deer, and I'll come back to that. But I look at, and I, you know I'm a keen bird watcher, I look at what some of these birds do on migration. There's a, a species of bird, the bar-tailed goblet, which flies nonstop from Alaska to New Zealand, nonstop. I think it's 12,000 kilometers. So it starts off with this enormous fat covering, which is built up over the summer months by eating everything 24 hours a day when the sun shines all day, and it builds up its muscle mass, and it picks up and flies nonstop. It doesn't land underwater. It doesn't rest. It can't do that. It'll sink and die all the way from Alaska to New Zealand. It metabolizes all the fat to keep it going. And then eventually what happens is it runs out of fat, starts metabolizing its muscles. And when it gets to New Zealand, 
I don't know what percentage of its weight is lost, but it's enormous. It's like a little hat rack when it gets there. And therefore, it spends the next two or three months feeding itself back up. So these things are tough as boots. And I think about the Brent geese. I watch Brent geese down on the south coast of uh, uh, of Dorset. I, I go down there a lot watching the geese there. I love to see them arrive. And they've flown from uh, Spitsbergen. They've flown from uh, uh, Greenland. And these animals do this in a wonder. Now, it's tough. These, these animals are, they're like old boots. So they're just extraordinary. But having said that, if I was going to eat a bread goose, and I'm not sure what it would taste like, I'm not sure people tend to eat very many of them anyway, because I think they eat pretty weird stuff, don't they? Eel grass and things like that. Um, but I still want to shoot it in a way which killed it as humanely as possible. So I'd want to make sure that I was competent, I had the right rifle, or probably more likely a shotgun with the right load, and that I was confident that the distance at which I shot it was likely to produce a, a as near instant kill as possible, and that the numbers of birds that were pricked or wounded and uh, uh, unable to fly as a result of uh, me not hitting it properly was kept to an absolute minimum. And I don't think that's unreasonable. I think that's a perfectly reasonable way of doing it. And that's why I'm quite a fan of things like the deer stalking certificates, which require or train people about the best way to shoot deer, how to stalk, how to uh, approach the animal, when to shoot, when not to shoot, what distance, what to do after you've shot it, and then subsequently about how you handle the carcass. Um, and I think that, in general, is a pretty good way of doing it. And it's worth pointing out, which I'm sure you're aware of, because I know you've taken quite a keen interest in uh, how people get uh, shotgun certificates or firearms uh, licenses, both in Ireland and in the UK, is that other than the deer stalking certificate, which is voluntary, there's no obligation to get it, there is nothing in the law which says that somebody that is out to shoot birds or mammals in the United Kingdom, which says that that person, first of all, has to know what they're shooting at, can tell the difference between a stock dove and a wood pigeon, for example, or that is an accurate shot and knows the best distance to shoot an animal. So you take working in a slaughterhouse, anybody who is handling animals up to the point of slaughter and killing them needs to have a, sh a, a slaughterman's license. And that involves training, supervision, and ultimately a certificate provided by a veterinarian. Now, I'm not being impractical because I don't think such training is necessary for somebody who's going to wield a shotgun in a pheasant shoot. But it seems odd that what you've got is something where we're going to kill all these chickens and we're going to eat them, and therefore the people that are doing it have to be competent, trained, and supervised. And we're going to kill all these pheasants so people can eat them and maybe have a bit of fun shooting them at a the time. And nobody takes any blind bit of notice about whether the people are doing it are competent or not. I think it's absolutely barking mad. So going back to my original question, um, I, I'm getting from you that the answer is like it doesn't matter how tough the animals are. We, we should do best we can here where we are and and how we are yeah in your book you're 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 talking about farm animals laboratory animals sport animals wildlife pets you have these groups and and you go into a lot of details in in, in each one of them but over overarchingly do you feel like we should apply the same set of you know, rules or the same same set of uh, treatment to all of those groups, or you know, from purely from the utilitarian point of view, you comfortable with you know having different set of rules to one type of animal and other. You know, it, it's it's a little bit of like a, a rat is a rat is a rat that you mentioned. Yes, earlier on, but you know, like you are you in your book, you're like I said, you're not you know, preaching from the high horse, you're trying to be uh, practical. 
So, you know, like where you see this, this practical middle ground between not being, you know, like applying one set of rules to one animals and the other, and then being practical about, you know, pets and, and, and farm animals and so, et cetera. I hope you don't think I'd be naive because I'm confident you aren't. One needs to be practical. And I think I might have mentioned this already, but I've, I, I spent quite a lot of time working in, in slaughterhouses when I was much younger as a, as, a, as a newly qualified vet. And the methods by which we kill animals in a slaughterhouse, whilst they're far from perfect, if they're used properly, they will kill an animal stone dead in microseconds. Not all of them do that. Most of them uh, involve rendering the animal unconscious and then killing it. Some of them, it's a, a stun and a, a, and a kill all in one. A lot of effort has gone into producing systems which do this and do it humanely and quickly and efficiently. Far from perfect, you'll have seen that I've said that uh, I'm uncomfortable about certain types of stunning of chickens and pigs. Both of these systems uh, where they use uh, either electricity for chickens or gas for pigs need refinement or replacement. But I'm not naive. I'm not expecting that same approach to be applied or even tried to be applied to wildlife. I do expect and do advocate where wildlife is being intervened against, and I'll come back to the why in a minute. For the how, I expect it to be done humanely. And what is clear that there are many ways in which wildlife are killed, and it's not humane. Uh, so I take many of the types of trap, um, the use of poisons for rodents, um, mole traps, um, the use of uh, things like larsen traps and ladder, tra ladder traps, and of course, the use of snares. All of those have got substantial problems in their use. And I don't doubt that some of them ought to be prohibited altogether. Um, and some of them, uh, the people that use them need to be held better to account so that they are properly inspected, properly trained, and able to be held to account for the way in which they're used. And then on top of that, that was the how. How are you going to do this? And by doing that, you need to do it better than the way we do it at the moment, either by replacing the equipment or making sure it's used to the very best standard. So that's the how. The question about why is something else I, I, I try and address as well. And my argument would be when it comes to eating meat, why do you do this? And the question, that the response, I think, is quite complex, but it could be because we enjoy eating meat, because these animals uh, provide an income to a lot of people, uh, because they uh, have an impact in the environment which is actually good, albeit there's an argument about their carbon footprint, but they might help improve biodiversity, etc., etc. So that's why. And then we talk about how you do it, the rearing of the animals and the killing of the animals, which is the how. Let's return to wildlife. We've talked about the how, traps, poisons, uh, and a variety of other things like snares, the question why is I find more difficult to answer objectively because for the most part, the reason why animals are snared, trapped and poisoned is because they're interfering with practices, businesses, which are of dubious ethical and societal value. So I would argue that snaring foxes and trapping crows to maintain a the practice of pheasant shooting, for example, which has a number of drawbacks and also can't be done humanely, 
um, is not acceptable. Uh, I, I can't subscribe to a practice which is protecting large numbers of non-native birds when the only way it could be made commercially viable is by killing a lot of our native species inhumanely. Um, and I won't be shaken from that, Tommy. Yeah, but then obviously I have to uh, bring bring the issue of uh, protecting native birds like curlew, where similar practices are being sure. being used, yes. snaring foxes, yes. shooting foxes, yes. and so on and so forth. Yes. So would that would that constitute a better why that then can make you or a person who considers those things more comfortable with those practices? And, and that's a very good question. Um, and I should say before I try to answer it is I sit on the RSPB's ethics committee uh, and the RSPB does kill crows, it kills deer, and it kills a number of other animals uh, which are interfering with its conservation aims. But the ethics committee and the RSPB hold themselves to account. So uh, they have a system by which Decisions about killing carrying crows to protect curlews or other ground nesting species of bird are taken in the knowledge that it's subject to ethical oversight and that they hold themselves to much higher account by deciding how many over what an area and for what period of time, despite the fact that the general license essentially allows you to kill as many as you like all the year round and also uh, over as big a geographical area as you choose. So I take the view that if in trying to find a way to reduce the fall in curlew numbers, that short-term geographically limited killing of carrying crows is acceptable, provided it's subject to a degree of independent oversight. And I think that contrasts quite sharply with the killing of carrying crows, or for that matter, other corvids and stoats and foxes and a variety of other animals on shoots where nobody holds them to account. Uh, the numbers that are killed are not constrained by any independent oversight. The methods that they use, albeit legally, uh, are not subject to scrutiny by independent inspectorate. And there's no ethical oversight of what they do and why. So I think there's a substantial difference. Yeah, so that's 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 where I'm where I'm coming at. That uh, you know the, the the practice remains the same and the suffering of the animal is the same, but the why that you're talking about and, and things around that are different, and then that changes the entire picture and also the numbers are very very much reduced the numbers are very different and they publish the numbers they get a bit of stick for publishing the numbers but what shooting estate publishes what numbers they've killed um uh in in the area that they're responsible for i don't think any of them do but uh, I, i'm willing to be proved wrong but i think i i i don't think it happens listen what would be the in your view the the best um, meat to consume, the best animal products to consume. Like, what would be your your advice? Given, you know, people listening to this and they and they thinking like, oh, yes, listen, I need to I need to pay more attention to that. Would you Would you give some uh, advice? And then I have follow up question after that: How deer hunting, deer stalking, as a way of getting meat for the table stocks up against those those uh, farming meat farming specifically practices i think i'm probably about to answer both questions in one uh is it, it, is that it depends on first of all whether it's a wild animal or a farmed animal if it's a farmed animal then i would argue that it's provided it's from a system which recognizes that these animals are social and have got behavioral needs. And I can go into a bit more detail about behavioral needs if you wish later. And that the environment in which they're reared is 
reasonably comfortable and provides warmth or whatever else, and an environment which is suitable for the animal. There are no mutilations of the animals and that uh, they have not been bred to an extent where the animals are growing too quickly or producing so fast either milk or meat that uh, their physiology is compromised in some way or another. So essentially what that does is rule out fast-growing broilers. It yield, it rules out the very highest yielding dairy cow, and it probably real, rules out the very fastest-growing pigs. What it does leave is um, pasture-fed or pasture-grown beef and sheep, but I also recognise that there are health concerns and climate change concerns about both beef and lamb. So it gets really quite complicated because there are a whole series of, if you like, moving parts that <coughs> have an impact on whether or not it's a good idea to eat these. So ultimately, I suppose slow-grown poultry would probably be the best way of farmed, farmed animals uh, and possibly some farmed beef grown in, in an environment where their behavioural needs are met and also it's not harming the environment too much. But I know that beef production is extremely contentious. And whilst I touch on it in the book, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to go down that route. When it comes to wild animals, and you mentioned deer, I think stalk deer with a competent expert shot I'm pretty comfortable with. I think it's a pretty good way of producing meat, provided the amount that is on the market is relatively small because there's no way you're going to feed a family, sorry, a country of 70 million people with deer meat. Um, I, I, I mean, if put it this way, I probably never do it now, but I have done a bit of rifle shooting in the past. But I would not be averse to going out and shooting a roe deer and butchering it for my freezer. I, 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 I would have no problem with that, provided uh, uh, the training I had prior to that meant that I was a competent shot. So in other words, you think that the, the lifetime of natural, uninterrupted, unexploited life by humans would overall make up for the potential you know less humane and more suffering yes, in the process yes. of the in, in the end right because like the idea that the animal should be instantly um unconscious and and die in a second and so on that that's obviously not happening in a in a stalking in a uh, scenario well no but, but but let's also be clear that if you shoot an animal a deer with the right rifle at the right distance with a competent shot and you shoot it in the chest at the right point and there is a sweet spot which i think you know is about that size immediately behind the point of the shoulder point of the elbow that will render the animal unconscious in a very short period of time um and uh there are other ways in which you could kill a deer like for example using a muzzle-loading rifle with black powder or something like that, or using a, a compound bow with a, a broad head arrow. Those are inhumane. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And the idea that you might use something like that to kill an animal for food or recreation, to my mind, is, is reprehensible when there are better, more humane alternatives. And that's why it's important that, that uh, there's a degree of accountability uh, whoever is exploiting these animals in the broadest sense of the word, that we as society have got an ability to hold farmers, hunters, researchers, pet owners to account and expect them to follow best practice. And using a compound bow with a broad arrow, broad head arrow is not best practice because there's a perfectly good 308 rifle you could use or a 243 rifle you could use to kill the animal so use that
I know that's the part where we differ in in, in opinions, but that's probably subject for a for a different podcast. <laughs> uh, and and for those who are interested, I I have at least two uh, episodes about bow hunting, so uh, they can they can yes, go yes. And, uh, listen to those. There's one more thing uh, I want to touch on, uh, and you introduced this this idea in your book about uh, which is kind of connects to what we're what we were talking about here right now about the total suffering per per pound of produced meat and you know which 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 kind of like is is a similar thing to what we're what we're saying is it helpful to to go into these types of considerations given that there is no as far as i'm concerned i certainly didn't get that from from your book there's no like an objective scale of suffering or there's like no objective scale of, you know, like a there is like suffering score six per pound of meat, and therefore, you know, animal can suffer more because it's heavier and so on and so forth. So, does it at some point that you know, like you have these guidelines in the end of the book, uh, your your personal ethical framework that you that you finished, you know, which which by the way I, I I like you know because you're talking about things like you know don't 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 be preaching to people and keep your mind open and keep it under review and and stuff like that. So I'm just you know just just want to uh, get to the point like how to just to quote the title of your of a chapter how to make a sense of it all you know with the with the with the all these moving parts that you talk about the the amount of me the societal aspects the you know at what part of life of the animal it suffers how much and where and why and all these things but then it's all fuzzy and you know uh we don't have a like a score of 6 therefore i'm going to you know buy and so how would you advise people to go about this in their daily lives or if they try to do better after listening to this podcast and then listening uh, reading your book okay this is going to be quite a long answer <laughs> um, well, go for I, it I, 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 uh, I like the idea of of a feel like a suffering index um and it's worth going back to the beginning of the book because one of the things i talk about there is our ability to perceive suffering in others and we have to remind ourselves that only we can suffer or only we can perceive our, 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 and, and understand our own suffering we can make assumptions about somebody else's suffering because they look ill or they've limping badly having fallen over and sprained their ankle or um they can tell you about the pain tell you about the suffering but it's only they that can experience it we can't experience it. Now, the medical profession has been working on pain indexes to understand uh, so that they can compare somebody's experience of pain day by day or hour by hour to see how, for example, um, uh, the treatment uh, or the pain relief is working. Um, but it's still subjective. It's not an objective way of doing this. So we go back to. Jeremy Bentham, the 18th century, perhaps 19th century philosopher, who said it doesn't really matter about whether or not these animals can think or whether they can uh, think about the future or communicate or whatever. It's all about whether or not they can suffer. And if they can suffer, then we need to do something about it. But like I say, I can't tell whether genuinely you are suffering. I can't tell whether a dog is suffering. But what I can do is make the assumption that if the animal is howling with pain and standing there on three legs with the bottom of one leg flapping about in the wind, that animal is in pain. And it's, we have a responsibility to try and relieve it of that pain if it is within our gift and our responsibility. The law is quite clear about that. So essentially what's happened is that society has accepted that animals can suffer and therefore the law now reflects that. But you're absolutely right. What it doesn't say is that this particular practice, this particular species is suffering more than this particular species or that particular uh, practice. 
So therefore, it would be impossible, at least in present day, to be able to say this pound of beef, this kilo of beef is derived from an owl that suffered less than this chicken from which this kilo of chicken meat derives. But there are ways in which you can do this. Now, I was working with um, a colleague of mine from Oxford University uh, and a number of other experts, and I wouldn't say I was an expert, we did involve a lot of other people, uh, veterinarians, pest control experts, physiologists, people who've been working on developing better ways of uh, uh, controlling rodents and so forth. And we used a structured system of analysis um, to look at the various different ways in which you can intervene against rodents. So live traps, in other words, live capture traps, lethal traps, poisons, exclusion, so keeping buildings secure, glue traps, and a variety of other things. And we had a, an objective or as an objective method as possible of ranking these systems. So the paper came out with actually saying that well-managed breakback traps are probably the best way of killing rodents. And the worst ways are things like poisons and glue traps. So you're able to, to do that. But it, there's a degree of subjectivity that is unavoidable. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And it doesn't mean that people can't form their own views. And one of the things I find quite odd is I, I know people who say, I'm prepared to accept um, eating meat, but I won't have any animals used in animal experimentation. And yet, I think in most cases, the people that have reached those opinions don't have enough evidence to back it up it's entirely subjective so i would argue that in order to reach that sort of decision about one type of exploitation versus another or for that matter a whole raft of them it pays to be get better informed and essentially that's the whole nub of my book which is here's a starter because it's not comprehensive it's never intended to be but here's something which tells you a little bit about how animals are farmed, how animals are researched on, how animals are kept in the wild or exploited in the wild. And there's a lot of references that you could draw upon if you wish, which allows you to work out as best you can how to decide if you're going to make some decisions about whether, for example, you'll eat venison but not poultry or uh, you'll wear leather shoes but not a down jacket, for example. Yeah, that's a that's a good advice, uh, folks. Treated like animals, improving the lives of the creatures we owe, eat, and use. Alec, thank you very much for your time. It was it was uh, very educational, very interesting. Thank you, and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have a talk about it. I've enjoyed it. I hope you find it useful. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show.